What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining us today is Jack Canfield. Jack is an American author, motivational speaker, corporate trainer, and entrepreneur. He is the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has sold more than 250 titles and 500 million copies in over 40 languages. In 2005, Jack co-authored with Janet Switzer, The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Behind the empire that Time Magazine called the publishing phenomenon of the decade, Jack is America's leading expert in creating peak performance for entrepreneurs, corporate leaders, managers, sales professionals, corporate employees, and educators. Jack is the founder and chairman of the Canfield Training Group and the Foundation for Self-Esteem and holds the Guinness Book of World Records for having seven books at the same time on the New York Times bestseller list. Jack has also been a featured guest on more than a thousand radio and TV shows, including Oprah, Larry King Live, 2020, and more. He's a graduate of Harvard with a master's degree in psychological education and one of the earliest champions of peak performance over the last 30 years. His compelling message, empowering energy, and personable coaching style have helped hundreds of thousands of individuals achieve their dreams, including myself. Jack has deeply impacted my life because in 2014, I felt stuck in area, every area of my own life, including being on Wall Street, and I went through his Breakthrough to Success program, which radically changed my life. Jack, it was a pleasure meeting you at the Super Bowl this year, and it's an absolute honor to have you on my show. Well, it's fun meeting you too. I enjoyed our conversation. So, I like you a lot. I like what you're up to. And um, so here I am. Well, thank you again. And um, to start us off, I would love if you would be willing to share a little bit about your upbringing and how that affected your journey and your mission and who you are today. Well, I grew up in a lower middle class family in Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, Both of my parents were alcoholics. My dad was also a workaholic. And um, I think Partly it affected me because I wanted not to be that. I didn't want to have the dysfunctionality that was in my family. I also played a lot of sports. I was on a football team, a basketball team, the track team. And uh, when I was uh, right around middle school, I, I had a rich aunt who had a son named Jack who was killed. And so she sent me to this private military school that he'd gone to. And so I got a better education than most people in West Virginia were getting at the time. And um, as a result of that, I think I, I discovered my natural leadership skills. I was a captain my senior year. I had a company under me. I was a Boy Scout. I was a troop leader in that. And then I was also the head of my high Y group in church. And so this natural leadership ability started to get nurtured and supported. And also, I had a wealthy uncle who owned the insurance agency in town. I used to go up and visit my cousin and stay for three or four days. And I remember going like, I want to live like this. They live in a mansion. They have a swimming pool. They have a tennis court. They have a five-car garage. 
um, lots of bedrooms, they nicer clothes. They go, to, they fly to New York to buy clothes at Brooks Brothers. I'm buying my clothes at Sears, you know. <laughs> so it installed in me a desire for something more. And that got exacerbated even more. I went to Harvard as, on a scholarship. And um, now I have friends like Larry Rockefeller and, you know, Max Factor the third, people like that. And it was like, wow, I'm still being surrounded by people who have more or doing more, come from these amazing families that have contributed a lot to the world. And I was inspired to want to do that. And I think the other thing that happened while I was in college, it was the beginning of the civil rights movement. And it was also the beginning of the, uh, the protests against the war in Vietnam. And so it really kind of awakened me to a larger consciousness to thinking broader than just my own personal uh, success, if you will. So that had a big impact on me as well. So I think it, it, I really developed this competitive nature, but also this consciousness that I wanted to make a difference, not just make, you know, money and make it make, make an impact that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that stood out to me is you shared that both your parents struggled with addiction and your father, alcohol and workaholism. And I see a lot of people today coming from a background like that and saying, I'm never going to do that or be like him. And then they, but then they become that. I, well, I, I definitely work a lot. So, I mean, there's that reality, but I feel like it's more purposeful than it is addictive. Um, yeah. I've looked at my own needs for approval and, and for attention and all of that. And I can go, like I said, I can take a month off and go to Hawaii for a month or go to India for a month and, you know, pursue my spiritual development. And, and I can, so I know how to disengage. I was lucky early on when I was in graduate school at the University of Massachusetts, I started studying meditation and that's had a huge impact on my life in terms of not only the ability to disengage from the world and go deeper and get better, better ideas from a higher or deeper place. I mean, uh, the title for Chicken Soup for the Soul came in the middle of a meditation, and that turned into a, you know, a brand that's probably worth $100 million now. So um, I would say that's been a huge piece of my background and my cultural reality, my daily disciplines, if you will. Yeah. And one of the things that really stood out to me when I went through your program is how you balance the logical, structured, goal setting type of approach with the more divine, earthy meditation. And I'm curious if you have any advice on who, how you've been able to balance the practicalities of doing business and following clock time and that more structured approach to life with your spiritual side. I remember a lot of music was a big part of the course and jhana and meditation and how you've been able to strike that balance in your life. Yeah. For people who weren't there, Janice Stanfield, who you referred to yeah. is a, is a singer and she calls her music heavy mental as opposed to heavy. <laughs> mental. And uh, she writes very uplifting songs. I sometimes have her come and be part of the training. Um, I think for me, I wanted to be a whole balanced person. And the method I teach is that we have a mind. We need to be very clear on our thinking and think the thoughts that successful, healthy people think. Yeah. We have an imagination. That's the creative side of ourselves. We're not taught to use that in school. In fact, uh, I used to teach teachers uh, this work before I got more into the corporate and, and adult you know, public seminars. And there was a book called Put Your Mother on the Ceiling. 
and it was literally imagine your mother in a red dress, change it to a pink dress, imagine it now turns polka dot, imagine your mother standing on the ceiling instead of on the floor. And it was training the mind to be creative and to create, to use visualization as a way to both uh, program the subconscious and also to, to, to get creativity out of there. Um, so, so we have the mind, we have the imagination, we have our bodies, our bodies are critical. And most people are sitting all day long now. They're not exercising. They're not stretching. Um, I just finished a Pilates class this morning. I'll do a weight training class tomorrow. I do yoga at night. Uh, I walk, not every day, but most days for 20 minutes after dinner. Um, you know, so you want to keep your physical body healthy. It's the food you put in it. Um, you want to detoxify. I do two-day cleanses every month or two. Um, so you want to keep everything functioning at a high level. And then I think we have our emotions. You know, if we don't learn how to manage our emotions, our anger, our fear, our um, jealousy and desires that are get, that get us into trouble, uh, we have to learn how to handle that. And then we have our intuition. We need to learn how to trust our intuition, how to access our intuition. And then you've got the spiritual self that sits above all that. I call it the high self that you have to learn to access through meditation, through intuition, through things like Tai Chi and Qigong and so forth and so on. So I think that when you have all of that working together, you're getting your directives from your higher self, from God, if you want to. And then you use all these psychological functions to put that into action so that you're behavior and your goals are based on your purpose and your spiritual destiny, if you will, or your divine talents that you've been given, the mission that you have here on earth. I believe we all have a purpose in life. And that if you don't know what that purpose is, to use Stephen Covey's quote, which I love, he says, you don't want to get to the top of the ladder realizing it's leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> and so we see a lot of people in, uh, in, in all around the world who are extremely wealthy, but they're unhappy because they pursued wealth rather than the expression of their full potential. And um, I think both are achievable, but when you're not doing it in a way that is fulfilling to you and in harmony with the highest good of both individuals and the planet, because we're doing a lot of destruction of our planet right now, yeah. then you don't have the great satisfaction that comes from that, the contentment that comes from that. Yeah. And, and have you, in your seminars or the work that you've done, um, what, what's the best way that you've been able to facilitate people pursuing both success and fulfillment? And has that ever been an issue in your life where you found yourself really successful, but maybe lacking? Sounds like you had your purpose from a young age, though. If not, then how have you done that in other people? Well, I think for me, I've always been fairly in touch with what's wanting to happen through me, if you will, like what, 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 what am I attracted to? What are my natural talents? I mentioned leadership and teaching were always there. And, um, and I have a certain level of humor that works for me in my work. So I've a lot, I've been given a lot of tools, if you will, to do the work I do. I don't think I was really in touch with the full scope of that until I, um, took a workshop with a guy named W. Clement Stone in Chicago. I was teaching, in an inner city school history. And I became much more interested in why my students weren't learning and why they weren't motivated than I was in teaching history. And it, it boiled down to self-esteem, self-concept, their own values, their beliefs and their abilities and so forth. And so I became more interested in how can I, how can I change that? How can I grow their self-esteem? How can I 
install the beliefs that they can be as successful as the white people they were seeing on TV. And many of these kids had never been more than three blocks from their, their school. It was pretty amazing. So that um, became the motivation for me. And yet at the same time, if I go back to your question, which was about balancing all that in my own life, I think I've always known that I had to schedule time on, on a schedule, like for, for exercise, for meditation, for family time. You know, one year we made the, every year we have a theme, you know, it was the year of the family. You know, this year it's the year of the self. I'm spending more time nurturing me and growing me and relaxing and getting more sleep and, and so forth. And, but, you know, we did two family reunions. We, I called my kids every two weeks, you know, I have like three boys who are now like 44, 41 and, and uh, 28. And so I think that, you know, there's a guy named Dan Sullivan who teaches something called the strategic coach program. And he teaches that you should divide your days into three days, three kinds of days, which I do because I took his program. I thought it was good. And he calls them focus days, uh, buffer days, and free days. And a focus day is when about 60 to 80% of your time is focused on what are the things that when you do them, create the greatest value for your company or your profession, your insight, you know, income, whatever it may be. And then, and most people don't do that. You know, we're back and forth all day long, you know, multitasking, doing this, doing that, running errands on a focus day when you should be just charging ahead. Yeah. And then a, a buffer day is all the stuff where you do all the things that you have to do, but they're not productive. You know, it's, some of it's called planning, it's running errands, it's uh, delegating, it's hiring people, it's studying, it's, you know, whatever it might be. It's not a direct income at that moment. And then the, the other day is free days, which is midnight to midnight with no work-related activity. And for most people, they haven't had a free day in nine years because you're taking phone calls, you're answering emails, you know, whatever. And what, what Dan teaches, and I believe, and I also teach now, is that when you take a full free day, midnight to midnight, you know, no emails, just doing things that are fun and recreational, you come back to work so much more creative, so much more energized. And so um, when I started to learn to do that, then my wife and I would sit down in January and we would structure out the year, where are the free days going to be? Like I said, next year I'm taking a, a month to go to India. And, um, and so that's scheduled. And like you could call me and say, you know, I've got a $30,000 a day gig for you. And I'd say, sorry, that's scheduled. And so, um, it's like you have to hold that time sacrosanct. Most people will let their free days be very much encroached upon by things because they're not holding them. They don't realize the value of it. We find that entrepreneurs, the more entrepreneurs take free days, the more successful they become. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. I'm going to say no to the 30,000, but think about what's going to unlock my whole life. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say no to 30,000. I get I that. That's a, bad, that's a <laughs> terrible example. Especially when you're starting out, you know. But, but the reality is, and you know, if, if I weren't going to be gone for a whole month, I could go to my wife and say, look, I've got this $30,000 gig. I want to take that, but can we take a free day here where I hadn't planned it and make up for it? And usually she'll say yes. Yeah. But it's important to not give those away totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned W. Clement Stone. Uh, a few minutes ago, and I wanted to ask you uh, about your thoughts on not only 
should we surround ourselves with certain types of people? But the bigger question that I get when I speak is, but Brendan, I don't know anyone who is a multimillionaire. How do I surround myself with the right types of people? Sure. Well, first of all, you can surround yourself with them by reading their books. You can surround yourself with them by watching their TED Talks or whatever else they do on YouTube. I mean, you know, I have, I don't know, probably 500 YouTube videos and Tony Robbins has probably the same amount. And so does Brian Tracy, who's also a multimillionaire. So you got a lot of people that are teaching out there. And then you've got people like Mark Cuban, you know, the owner of the basketball team yeah, down in Texas. Yeah. You know, all these guys on Shark Tank and there's videos there you can watch. Um, there's courses that they offer. There's master classes being offered on, on the internet. Now, the other thing you can do, you can join associations where they might more likely be. You can go to conferences on financial things where those guys and gals might show up. You can join associations like... For me, when I first started out, I wanted to hang out with the best psychologists on the planet. So I joined two psychological associations. And I remember one year, that's probably in my late 20s, early 30s, and I wanted to be with the big boys, you know, the Carl Rogerses and the, the people that were like icons. And um, so they all got to meet at this cocktail party for the speakers of the conference. So I asked if I could be a volunteer and just walk around and hand out wine and cheese and things like that. And they said, sure. So now I'm in there, but I got to talk to them. I got to be in their space. I got to know some of them, you know. And so that's another way. Uh, every You could join a country club. You'll find out people that are wealthy. Uh, you can um, also, every once in a while, upgrade to first class with your, multi, you know, your, your frequent flyer miles. That's not a guarantee, but I've sat next to some really cool people, both actors and, and uh, corporate presidents and so forth. It might not be. It might just be another guy that upgraded the first class so they could sit next to a millionaire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's all great advice. And I want to yeah. go a, l- a little personal with you and, and ask W. Clement Stone, like, what, what was the personal connection? What did he see in you? How did he touch your life in a specific way? Well, I first started by going to a seminar that his foundation put on. And then I, I, they, um, they found out about my experience in the inner city and they were looking to hire someone to do that. And I was working at a job course center, which where they teach kids who dropped out of school it was a federal program at the time. And uh, they were about to close soon. So I said, I'm going to take this opportunity to go work with stone. And over time I got to, I got to meet him a number of times and he was uh, quite amazing, very personable, very approachable. And um, uh, the thing he taught me more than anything else was to always think positive you know, like, like, what if it could work? Like, you know, like never say, well, that won't work. Say, well, if it could work, what would we have to do? And he taught me another thing. If you can imagine two overlapping circles and see the space in between them there. Mm -hmm. And so he was the dyed in the wool conservative Republican. And I was a young, fairly liberal Democrat at the time. And I I asked him one day, it was, we were in the elevator going down. And I said, um, you know, why, why did you hire me? I'm, we're kind of diametrically opposed in our political views. And he said, Jack, you know, think of these two circles. Here's where you and I disagree, and here's where you and I disagree. But right there where it overlaps, we agree. We both want to end gangs in Chicago. We both want to help empower young people that are in the inner city. And all we have to do is focus on that. We'll never talk about what we disagree about. What's, it's a waste of time. Let's focus on where we agree. And, and that was huge. Uh, you know, if they could do that in Congress in America, we'd get a lot more done. Mm. But instead, we're constantly focused on where we disagree 
trying to make the other guy wrong instead of spending time going, yeah, we both want roads and bridges that don't fall down. We both would like to see the border safe. Maybe it's the wall, maybe it's electronic surveillance, but let's find out what we do agree and focus on that. And that was huge. And he also taught me to visualize, to use affirmations and to not be, when I first went to work with him, I was kind of negative about rich people. You know, I thought rich people always screwed over everyone else to get rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was my father's belief. So that's what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And um, he taught me that rich was not a four-letter word. He taught me that basically when you have money, you can do a lot with it. And my friend, Bob Proctor, who was in a secret with me, likes to say, if you don't have a lot of money, the good you can do is limited to where you are physically. Right. But if you have a lot of money, you can do good all over the world through contributions, foundations, philanthropy. Right. And that, that had a big impact on me as well. So I've always wanted to have enough money to be able to support the things I care about. Yeah. So optimism, finding where we agree, money doesn't have to be a bad thing. Right. Pow- powerful lessons. Um, he, also taught, he also taught me to always carry a $100 bill in my, in my wallet or my pocket. And... I, yeah. And I, at the time, that was a lot of money for me because I think I was making like, you know, 20000 a year or something, right? Yeah. And, um, but he said, I want you never to be able to say I'm broke. He said, so when you have $100 in your pocket, you know you're not broke. And, you know, if you had to spend it for an emergency, do that, but then immediately replace it. So every time you go into your pocket or your wallet, you see the $100 bill, and you go, oh, I have $100. And back then, I was like, well, I'm rich. <laughs> you know, so... Now I carry like, you know, five $100 bills in my little, you know, folded bills. So I always know, I have that sense of like, wow, I'm abundant. It just, it's so stupid and silly. It almost sounds like first grade, but it always has that little affirmative, you know, quality to it. Yeah. I went to the ATM the week in 2000, like five years ago, after you said that on your course. And I've had yeah. probably three or four, at least $100 bills in my wallet since. Right. Uh, it makes a difference. It, yeah, it really does. That's amazing advice. Next question I have for you um, can really come from any area of your life, but looking for one of the harder decisions you've ever had to make, either saying no, walking away, or just a big decision you've had to make and what you learned from it. I'll share two of them with you because I thought about that question. And that is number one was my divorce. That was about 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for a bunch of reasons. I had a six-year-old son, and I knew from the research that there was no way that wasn't going to have some kind of impact on him right. as much as we tried to do it consciously. Um, I loved my ex-wife, um, but we were just moving into greater and greater levels of incompatibility. Um, and the way I described my life at that time was every time I come home into my house, it's like I would go from a color movie to a black and white movie. And it was like, it just wasn't fun anymore. And we did all the things you're supposed to do. We did couple therapy. We did exercises from books. I mean, we didn't hold it lightly at all. But eventually I just said, I can't do this anymore. It's like climbing Mount Everest and there's too much of a storm coming in. Stay on this mountain, you're going to die. And um, so that was hard. And the third thing was hard about it. It cost me $8 million. I think I had about eight and a half million saved up from all the chicken soup earnings. And, um, she got half of everything of mine. So I got to keep my house and my business, which are assets, but there was no cash. Right. She got Not all like the, that. Yeah. 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 So it was like, Oh man, this really hurts. I was wearing, 
I'd wear dark shirts like this because they don't show the dirt so much. But I would wear them two and three days in a row. I wouldn't send them to the cleaners. Or I'd wear T-shirts so I wouldn't have to, you know, just wash them. Mm. I mean, I was really working at the bottom level of abundance, you know. Mm. Um, and so knowing that was going to come, that was very hard. And then I loved her, and I'm the one who left. And I watched her suffer, you know, from her own beliefs that she would never find another man and watched her go through the grief of the relationship, the disillusionment. So that was very, very hard. Very, very hard. I mean, it all, it's all worked out for the good of everybody. But um, there were a couple years there where the, the getting ready to do it and the aftermath of doing it was and just going through the divorce process. It's painful. I don't care how conscious you are. Yeah. The second hardest thing I ever did was to sell chicken soup for the soul. Uh, that was about eight, nine years ago, maybe 10, where um, my COO at the time basically found this really good deal that someone wanted to buy it for tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. And so my whole identity was I'm the chicken soup guy. You know, I mean, that's how people would refer to me. Yeah. And this is what I do. And it's made a huge impact on so many people. And if I mention chicken soup for the soul, I'm instantly elevated because people have read like five books. And so letting go of that was very challenging. And it took about a year and a half to like just work through not being that guy anymore, right. having a huge influx of money, which was, you know, the most money I ever had. And uh, just getting used to that. Everyone thinks, oh, it's fun to be wealthy. Yeah. But it's also something you have to really get used to. You have to learn how to steward that kind of money consciously. It's very easy to overbuy, to uh, become irresponsible with the money, to um, not, not steward it correctly, if you will. Mm. So that was a difficult thing too. Now, I'm glad I did it. It opened up the whole success principles work that I do and allowed me to have a whole different kind of day. I mean, I was reading 20, 30 stories a day and then editing stories every day. Now I have doing more trainings, more travel. It's much more interesting at some level. Mm. I'm curious how you not only found a way to steward that level of capital, but also how you were able to um, stay humble and, and not let that go to your head. And, you know, obviously you have so much to be proud of yourself for, but to be yeah. proud of yourself for the things and not for the money and identifying with the new level of income. I think I've always had a certain quality of humility. I'm not sure why probably started with self-doubt. So I, I never thought I was that great when I was growing up, you know? Yeah. And so perhaps that had its good effect later on when my self-esteem did improve. Right. Um, and I think that the, the, the spiritual work, the meditation is a big part of that. Um, I did go through a couple of years, they called it my nouveau riche stage, where I stocked a, a wine cellar very well. I had a, we had a, a chef that worked in our home for two years and we decided we wanted the privacy more than having someone cook these amazing meals. Plus we put on a lot of weight, which is not good. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, and then it was like, I think at that point I realized I needed support because it was not my genius. Um, unlike you who had a lot of financial training, I ended up uh, hiring someone who they calls it running a family office. Yeah, and he used to work for Deutsche Bank and had high high end clients, and uh, he's got still a number of high end clients that came with him when he started his own practice. But I meet with him quarterly. We go over all our options, buy and sell stocks, and other kinds of things. Most of our money is in income producing money rather than high growth. 
Right. First of all, I'm older. I don't need that. But more, it, it provides me with a steady flow of income so that I'm never worried about, you know, not having enough money. I don't have to make decisions based on money. I make them based on what I want to do. And I know that there's still enough income coming off of all that to uh, provide our basic lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Income generation, passive income, mm -hmm. all great. I, I want to go back to uh, the first hard decision that you mentioned about your divorce. Sure. And um, I'm, I'm curious, not only advice in terms of relationships from personal experience, but um, more specifically, how not either what you taught or what you used to think about relationships, like what your advice would have been then versus what your advice is now in terms of people coming to you asking for advice on relationships. I think one thing I would, I would really advise people is take your time getting into a relationship, spend more time getting past the, the biochemical, you know, crush stage um, and really look at what are the common values? How do you feel about children? Uh, how do you feel about travel? How do you feel about handling money? My ex-wife and I had a totally different thoughts about money. I'm an investor. I want to invest in things that are going to build my business. I want to, you know, I, I, she would say I'm a spender. She's a saver, right. but I would, I would invest in like life insurance. I would invest in liability insurance and she would think that was wasted money, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I was building our, our wealth base, but she just saw money going out. And then also, I also believe in having nice things. And, and so she was always freaked out that we were going to be poor. And um, so where do you stand on money? Where do you stand on spending? Where do you stand on spirituality, religion? Um, I remember hearing a joke recently. It said there was an atheist and an agnostic, and they were arguing about which religion not to bring their children up in. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, you know, and, uh, you know, vacationing, like my wife does not like to go, like for me, I would love to go to, to, to um, Europe and just go from city to city, like three days in Barcelona, three days in France, in Paris, three not my wife. She wants to go somewhere and stay there for a while. Right. And, you know, it's not been a deal breaker at all, but I wish I'd known that, you know, before we got married. Yeah. So. I think having those kind of conversations, there's a lot of books out there you can read that kind of take you through questions you can ask. I think the other thing is, is, is relationships are work. When you're in that romantic stage, you don't think so. It's just all wonderful and you're attracted to each other. You have to spend time on working on the relationship. Things are gonna come up where your values clash, your definitions of what a clean kitchen is are different, you know? And you've gotta have some tools for communication. Like, can you have difficult conversations? You know, there's books written about having difficult conversations and yeah. communication skills. I would say for me, one of the main things for me was learning to listen. You know, I'm a typical male, if you read Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, yeah. where if my wife starts to talk about a problem, I start spewing out solutions. Yeah, yeah. She's not interested in solutions. She just wants to be heard. She'll come to her own solutions if I just listen long enough and repeat back what she's saying. Yeah. Um, and so that was a big, big lesson for me. And then... I, are you familiar with the five love languages? Yeah. Yeah. I've read that yeah. book. Yeah. So that book I think is critical for relationships. My wife is the quality time and I'm nurturing touch. And so, person. so if, if she doesn't, if I don't sit there and listen to her every day, I just shut up. 
she doesn't feel like I love her. I can tell her what a great job she's doing. I could, you know, hug her, caress her, um, you know, buy her a gift, but yeah. she's quality time. And so knowing that is, and knowing how to do, deal with that is, is profound. If you don't know that, you're going to get into a lot of trouble because you're trying to give people what you, what you want, not what they want. So I'm always like grabbing my wife and she's sometimes she's going, you know, you're, you're smothering me. You know? <laughs> I don't take it personally anymore. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's great. So, yeah. So exploring values before and not just letting the, the chemistry go too fast, right. realizing that it's work, listening and, and learning love languages. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I used to run a couples course that, you know, we could do like an hour and a half of the, this on that question, but yeah. I think those are, real critical. And I think just setting aside time to be with your partner or to work on stuff together. Like, like there's, there's a great technique called heart talks where yeah. I would have an object in my hand. Like I could take this bottle of water and that's our object. And as long as I'm talking, you can't say anything. When I'm done, I give it to you and now you hold it and then you're talking and I can't say anything because we interrupt each other all the time. And so just learning to have that kind of a heart talk, where you talk about what's really going on and you can't be interrupted and you can't offer other solutions. You just have to say what your experience is really, really valuable. So there's a lot of tools that people can learn. I would recommend everybody go to some kind of couples awareness class or something. So you build those tools. We spend more time learning how to work on our cars than we do to work on our relationships. And when we wonder why they don't work. Yeah. Well said. I uh, want to go back to what you mentioned, this year of, of me, of the self, and it also kind of ties into you talking about this free day. And as a recovering workaholic myself, my Wall Street days, and a lot of listeners out there who are very interested in this, um, how, how would you recommend someone who does not have much experience taking care of themselves kind of ease into that process without getting too overwhelmed? I think you have to define what does taking care of myself mean. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, one way, I had a professor in graduate school who had us make a list of 20 things we love to do, 20 things I love to do. So listen to Bob Dylan or, you know, pet the cat, go shopping for, you know, whatever. Uh, play tennis, take a walk, do yoga, um, sit in the bathtub, you know, whatever, 20 things you love to do. And then make sure you have that list available where you're going to see it. He, called, he also called it the anti-depression list. Whenever you're feeling down, do something that makes you feel good. You know, it's not that complicated. You know, it might be painting or cutting the grass or whatever. So that you schedule time to do the things you love to do. And one of the big misnomers, I think, that happens, Brendan, is that people think that there's work and there's home. And really what there's, there's work, there's the relationships at home, you know, spouse and kids, and then there's me time. Mm. And me time can be two kinds of time. It could either be totally alone, you know, work tinkering on the car in the garage, watching a football game on TV, taking a walk, meditating, being, you know, listening to music, whatever it is, but it's really me time. And nobody can interrupt you and tell you you're wasting your time. So for me and my family, Monday night's my time. I structured that because that's what Monday night football is. So my wife, my wife cannot say, you're wasting your time. You should be spending time with me. We agreed. I can do anything I want on Monday nights. I can go to the – she does not like violence in the movies. 
I'm not a big violence fan, but uh, some war movies I really find interesting, like Dunkirk, you know. And so I can go to a movie with my friends, guys. I can go out and walk around the block. I can sit in my office if I want to work. It's still me time. I want it's what I want to do. So yeah. she can is this leave me alone time. Um, and then we have we have date night. You know, if I'm home Friday night is date night. Saturday night it used to be kids' night, and then Saturday night was our night. Now it's Friday night's our night. Saturday night is friends' night. We'll go out to dinner with friends or invite them over, sit around. We have a fire pit on our property, sit around, drink wine, whatever. But uh, so you schedule those kinds of times in in into yourself. And here's the big deal. Most people do not schedule their me time. They don't schedule their self-nurturing time. Yeah. So I have friends that recently just came up in a workshop, friends of mine, they were taking it. And I said, what's one thing you love to play tennis? When's the last time you played tennis? Oh, it's been two years. Who do you like to play tennis with? My daughter. Did you think your daughter spends enough time with you? No, she's always saying we should spend more time together. Why don't you schedule whatever rhythm works for you once a week, once every two weeks, a tennis match with your daughter and she well that's really a great idea we don't stop to think about it you know yeah, and yeah. so if you schedule it now i remember being in a workshop where as a little client and this guy was talking about similar stuff and he asked this guy he says when's the last time you had a free day he said i wouldn't know what to do on a free day he had been uh colin powell who used to be the secretary of the defense yeah. he had been his driver so you pick him up in the morning at home, drive him to work, assist him all day long, drive him back. He had no time. I mean, he's up at four, four in the morning every day. Yeah. So what we did was we actually had the group brainstorm things he could do that would be fun. So if you don't know what to do to nurture yourself, ask other people, what do you do to nurture yourself? So you could go to a spa, get a massage, sit in the hot tub play tennis, play Scrabble, play words with friends, play games like, you know, I don't know, whatever games, you like. I don't know, I don't play video games, my kids do, but whatever's out there, you know, Grand Theft Auto, which is probably 10 years ago. <laughs> but the point being, if that's fun for you, find the time to do that. But also you want to nurture your body. I think, you know, exercise is really good. Meditation is good. And I think getting massages is great. I'm saying that because nurturing touch is my, my love language. Uh-huh. But Find the things that work for you. Maybe it's jogging. Maybe it's playing. You know, I have friends who are in their 50s that play field. They go out and they play hockey. They're 50 years old. They're banging around on the ice. You know, so yeah. it, figure it out. And get a, get you can get a fun coach. Someone's going to coach you out have more fun. Yeah, and and we're kind of talking about this in the context of potentially doing things with friends, which reminds me of when I listened to your course. You talked a lot about how to say no effectively. And I remember you gave an example of someone calls who you didn't really like and you said, oh, I'm busy tonight. And then they call the next night. And, you know, so it's like about being clear and honest. And I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just go ahead. Well, no, you're, if you say I can't do it now, then they're always going to say, can you do it then? Yeah. You know, like, like when I, like I get asked to write forwards to books and testimonial quotes for back the book and all that stuff yeah. and before i was smart about it i would say well I, i'm really busy this this is a couple of months i'm really busy mm-hmm. well if i said it to you in two months would you do it you know so you've just delayed the no yeah so you can say something like i have a policy right now i'm saying no to pretty much everything and spending more time with my kids yeah. if you give them an alternative and i'm spending more time with my wife i'm, I'm working on finishing my book then they kind of go oh that's cool or one thing I learned that's really valuable is a policy. You say, I have a policy. I don't loan my car. I never go out on weeknights, you know, uh, whatever it is. So it's a firm no. 
And the other phrase that's so valuable is it's not against you, it's for me. Somehow that really takes the sting out of it. You know, you want me to be on the PTI, I get that. You know, I'm really devoted to my own work right now. It's not against the PTA, it's for me and what my values are in this moment. So I wish you well, and I hope you have a great year. And uh, for me, it's a no. And they get it. Yeah. Did you ever have like a boundary tester show up in your life, maybe early in your life, where you kind of learned this lesson of how to get better at this and put up better boundaries? Well, I've had lots of people even show up on my property. <laughs> Like, you know, you didn't answer my email, so I'll ring your doorbell. Um, you know, and I would say 90% of the time it's still a no. Sometimes there's just something so charismatic about the person I, I end up wanting to help them, you know. But uh, anyone listening to this, don't do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think, you know, there, there are certain people who don't have a good sense of social cues. Yeah. And so they just come at you. Like kids, can I have a cookie? No. Can I have a cookie? No. Can I have a cookie? You know, they just don't, they never stop. Yeah. And so sometimes I did have one stalker once who I had to actually get legal action. She would show up at my workshops everywhere and just wanted to talk to me and uh, meet me. I'd be checking into a hotel. There she'd be. You know, I mean, I'd be, it was weird. Um, but generally, and that was, you had to be really firm about that. Yeah. Wow. And that kind of leads me to another question that I wanted to ask you, which is, as you've had a lot of the success in your life, especially not only with Chicken Soup for the Soul, but you're, you're a recognizable person. Like when I was at the Super Bowl, that's Jack Canfield. And, you know, how, how are you able to, um, again, kind of going to what I was saying earlier about not letting it get to your ego um, and kind of detach success from worth. And for people out there who may not be famous or well-known or written many books like you, how can they find strong self-worth not attached to like financial achievement or having to do something to feel good enough? Well, I think you have to finally give yourself permission to be yourself. I was watching a movie last night. Uh, it was called Rocket Man. It's about Elton John. Elton John, yeah. And um, I liked it. It's a good movie. It wasn't as good as Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. It's the same genre of movie, yeah. but it was very good. And at this one point, this guy was saying to Elton John, at some point, you have to say goodbye to the person who you were born to be and say hello to the person you're meant to be. Something along those lines. Yeah. And I thought that was really powerful. And I think for me, I don't, I mean, I, I have to say, there's no question. I don't, I, I definitely feel good when people tell me my work's affected their life. You know, when they say, I appreciate your work or I watch you on YouTube or your books got me through my mother's cancer or whatever that that feels good and and um, and they'll probably say and you probably hear that all the time and I say but I never get tired of hearing it you know so uh, it allows them to know they impacted me I feel good that they shared that with me and it does feel good to know you've made a difference in the lives of others so I rarely have anyone come up to me and say oh I'm so impressed with you being a best-selling author or you're a millionaire I mean, that wouldn't feel good. I don't care about that, you know. But what I do care about is the lives I've impacted. I was walking through a hotel one night in New York, coming back from a gathering, and this uh, little girl was sitting there, and she was uh, bald with her parents, and it was clear she was going through chemotherapy. And as I was walking by, the parents stopped me and said, oh, you're Jack Canfield. 
your books have really helped us get through our daughter's chemotherapy. We read, we read her stories. I almost cried. I mean, that's so fulfilling to know that something you've done is having a positive impact in the lives of others. So I stood there and talked to them for about 10 minutes, you know, because I was curious what their experience was. Um, I don't think anyone's ever accused me of being arrogant or proud. I, I, I don't feel that way. I, somewhere along the line, I heard the phrase that I wanted to do what was for the highest good of all concerned. Every decision I make, I ask, is this for the highest good of all concern? Meaning, does it destroy the planet? Is it gonna hurt other people for me to win, they're gonna lose? Is it um, gonna make me money, but there, someone else sacrifice? So for me, it has to be a win, 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 win. And, um, and I do feel, it's like I'm in, it, it's resonant with my heart more than like my ego. I don't know how to say that better. So it just feels like how we should live. And I don't feel like I, I don't brag about the fact my heart beats every day. You know what I mean? It's just, it yeah. does what it, yeah. That, that's beautiful. You know, I have noticed, this is kind of be the last question, and then I want to make sure the audience hears all about your, what you're up to and your speaking tour and everything. Sure. Um, as, as I've seen and even helped people in my own way find and get more aligned with their vision and their purpose, they can actually face more resistant initially to trying to pursue that and finding, oh, if I just stay in corporate America or if I stay in this other thing, it feels easier. And I'm curious if you had any resistance or um, hard times, like either getting publisher for your initial books or going through that and any advice you have for people who are, all right, this is what I want to do, but it feels hard. No, I always say if success were easy, everyone would be, um, there'd be no fat people, everyone would be wealthy and happy. Um, <laughs> you know, it takes work. Uh, I think, Someone once said the only place success comes before work is in a dictionary. And uh, that's true. I like that. Yeah. So for me, um, I lost the question there. Um, uh, it, it was just um, like when you find your purpose instead of the easier out, it can feel harder initially. Yeah. yeah. So, so just, no, you know, we, I think if something's worth doing, you're going to get pushback. In other words, the universe is testing how committed you are. Right. Uh, it's sometimes I believe that all personal growth occurs when you take on a challenge that's bigger than what you currently know how to deal with so that you have to learn something new in order to deal with it. So for me, I had to learn how to do radio and television interviews, I took classes on that. Um, I had to learn how to bring humor into my talk. My sister once said to me when she took a workshop, she said, if becoming and getting high self-esteem means becoming like you, I'm not interested. And I said, why? She said, you're too, you're too damn boring. You're too serious. And so I literally embarked on a year's worth of work to become funnier. I listened to comedy. I must have bought like 10 or 20 comedy albums. I would listen to them and think, why is that funny? Um, and still to this day, the only stations I listen to on my car, XM radio, is um, the comedy channels. Because you learn to think and you just start seeing things a little funnier. Um, so those were things where I had to do it. But, 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 but the big ones were like, for me, the first chicken soup for the soul book was turned down by 144 publishers over about 18 months of time. So I always tell people if I quit after a hundred rejections, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And so the reality is that there's going to be things that are required of you that are not easy. You know, the, when you learn to drive a car, with high motivation, independence, be able to be mobile, get around, be able to take your girlfriend out, whatever. But it was challenging, especially when you had a stick shift. You know, now it's easier with the you know the automatic. 
but it was worth doing. Uh, you know, graduating high school, there were things you had to do, but it was worth doing. Graduating college, being successful at sports, uh, learning how to invest your money correctly like you did on Wall Street. So I think the reality is that for me, I say the purpose of setting high goals is not to achieve the goal, but the mastery of yourself and the laws of the universe that are required in order to do that. You can't become a millionaire if you don't know how to say no. You can't become a millionaire if you don't know how to ask for support, ask for money, ask for investors, ask people to enroll in your seminars. Some people have a big problem with rejection. So you have to overcome your fear of rejection. Once you've done that, you now have more capacity to do anything you want in life. And so for me, it's about mastery. That's why I admire people in the martial arts so much because you look at these people five, 10, 15 years later, you know, they have more self-confidence, they have more sense of energy, they have more control of their body, they control of their mind, they don't let fear run them anymore, they're in the present moment. Um, so I would encourage people to take the steps toward that which you feel attracted to be drawn to do and become, mm -hmm. but know that it's gonna require effort, work, feedback, failure. Um, you know, failure is not a terrible thing. I was putting together a presentation for some kids on, who are athletes recently. And I found this quote by Yoda. And um, he said, the difference between a master and a beginner is the master has failed more times than a beginner has even, even, even tried. Wow. And so we learn from our failures. And failures are a step towards success. Sometimes in my seminars, I'll put the word F-A-I-L. And then if it fail, but if you take the I and put another little line at the bottom, now it's called fall. And I always say, how many of you have raised children? And most of my audiences are adults say they raise their hand. I say, how many of you told your kid you have 150 chances to learn how to walk? And if you keep falling after that, I'm giving up on you. Nobody ever did that. And every time you fell, you were learning something about balance. And so every failure is an opportunity for feedback on how to get better. So unfortunately, we've all been trained in American education, whatever country you're watching from, that to fail is bad. You know, it's that we get an X on a paper. Here, stupid is where you were stupid. We want to avoid that. And so basically, we have to learn that the only way to learn is to make mistakes and then learn how to do it better. I, I teach juggling in some of my seminars. Yeah. And, and, um, Believe me, everyone starts swearing at the ball. We use, they don't roll away because we use the ones that are beanbags. Yeah. But I teach them instead of saying, oh, some swear word, say, oh, what fun. This is how we learn. And if I teach that over a seven-day period, as, I, as I've done sometimes when I'm training trainers, the first couple of days they can't do it. The third and fourth day, it starts to get easier. By the seventh day, most people can do it. Why? Because every time they drop it, the brain is recalibrating. Well, why did we drop that? Our hand was too far forward. We threw it too high. We reached up too much, you know. And the brain's con every more every night is re it's um, processing all that. So the next day, what happens is you're a little better, but you can't get a little better if you don't go through the failure process. Yeah, I mean, this is the type of content and magic and value that you're sharing with my audience right now that totally transformed my life and. I just want to thank you again for that because Welcome. when I was on Wall Street, I was very depressed and unhappy and addiction and isolated. I'm in a relationship now and all these, I mean, just 
the hours of really, and I know you put in a lot of hard work and reading and studying and you go to India and you do all these things. And um, it's a great service for our society, especially with these shootings and the state that we're in. And I just, I want to thank you again for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. We're working right now on a, developing a curriculum for schools so we don't get these school shooters. In other words, the shooters are usually the alienated ones because they're not included. So if you can create pockets of inclusion for everybody in the school, just like literally having the whole class break into groups of five and doing an exercise like we do in the trainings, then eventually kids feel included. They don't need to shoot everyone that fired them or didn't treat them with respect or whatever. So, you know, and again, it's the failure of our schools that allow us to see what's not working so we can improve the schools. It's that simple. Exactly. So you've mentioned seminars. I've obviously been radically transformed by your program. Please tell us all about this upcoming speaking tour and how people can get involved and get close to you. Yeah, we're doing a four city tour of one day workshops. Uh, one will be in um, Atlanta. Uh, one is in um, Toronto. One is in, um, it's in um, Salt Lake City. And I think, is it, I forget what a fourth one is. New, Newark or New York? Yeah, it's in the Newark, New York area. Thank you for having your notes there. Yeah. Um, I just know it's coming up and I'm going to be getting on airplanes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, basically, you know, if you live anywhere near there or you can fly in, uh, this will be the last year we're doing these one-day workshops. Uh, next year, we're going to only do three-day workshops. We're going to do four of them around the country. But this is the best introduction. We call it Breakthrough to Success. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's called uh, One Day to Greatness. Breakthrough to Success is our longer workshop. Yeah, One Day to Greatness. And what, what I'll teach you in that day is the core elements of a system of success. We define a system as something that always works. In other words, if you have the perfect recipe for an apple pie from your Aunt Martha, and you do it exactly the same way every time, you'll get the same pie. But if you change the flour from whole wheat to regular wheat, if you know it's been milled, if you change it from stevia to you know, molasses, whatever it is, you're gonna change the pie. But if, so what I'm teaching you is a system of about 10 steps that if you do them in the right order, at the right way, at the right time, you can guarantee yourself success in any area of your life, whether it's sports, or whether it's finances, or whether it's relationships, or being a better parent, anything you want to improve upon and then produce a bigger result, uh, is, is, is you're going to learn how to do that. And these are not things that are taught in school. This is a sad thing about it. We don't teach these yeah. principles yeah. in our educational system. You know, we're working on changing that. I'm writing books about it. We're developing curriculum. But more than likely, if you're watching this, you've learned some of these things by being on podcasts like this. But this is a system of how it all fits together in the right way that will actually get you where you want to go. So I would encourage you to uh, just go to jackcanfield.com and uh, you can find out about our training. Also, if you go to jackcanfield.com, there'll be a pop-up window. You can actually sign up for something called the 10-Day Success Transformation. And that will give you uh, 10 lessons that come to you on your phone or your iPad or your computer, whatever you put in there. You know, you know, your phone number or uh, get a text. And it's about a three to five minute uh, video, three to five minutes, plus a homework assignment for the day, something to focus on during that day that will allow you to Velcro this new principle into your life. So if you can make it to the one days, I really encourage you to do that. 
we usually have like, you know, three, four, 500 people there. Not only will you learn some things that are really valuable, and I won't just talk at you all day, you'll be experiencing these things. You'll be setting a, a breakthrough goal, a goal that you can achieve in one year that will quantum leap your life. Like, you know, we've had people double their income. We've had people start their own radio shows. People have uh, got out of terrible jobs and gotten into new ones. People have written their best-selling book in that year. So whatever. So everyone will leave with a breakthrough goal in some area of your life that you'll be able to actually manifest at the end of the year. And it, um, your life won't be the same if you come. I promise you that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm living proof of that. And so, guys, one day to greatness. Um, it's happening in Atlanta, Toronto, Salt Lake, New York area. I'm spoiled. I'll be in the New York area. So that's an easy one for me. But for any listener out there who is not, it's absolutely a million percent worth getting over there. Um, Jack Canfield, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Um, the last question I have is um, in the spirit of education and people, younger people, um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give to someone who's graduating college and listening to this? I would say follow your heart. In other words, what are you really attracted to? What makes you come alive? And when I talk to college students, I ask them, what is it? What's their goal? And unfortunately, half the time I hear to become a millionaire. And to me, that's a byproduct of a goal. Um, if you do what you love and you do it well and you find a way to monetize it so it's valuable to other people. In other words, you want to do what you do so well. To quote Walt Disney, when, other, when people see you do it, they bring other people to see you do it again. And so... For me, you know, I do what I do really, really well. And people like you who see me do it are now going to come and see me do it again. And I get paid to do that. And so follow the thing that makes you most alive. You know, I mean, there are people making money as a professional surfer. There are people making money doing a restaurant they started. There are people making money being a chef. There are people making money as a, as a rock musician. You know, Chicken Soup for the Soul, when it did come out after 144 rejections, it took 18 months before it hit the bestseller list. So it was no overnight success, but I didn't give up on it because I enjoyed it too much. I was passionate about it. Follow your passions, find a way to follow your passions. One of my colleagues, uh, her son loves sports, went to High Point University in North Carolina and studied the area of like sports management, sports announcing, like you could be an announcer, like, you know, on CBS sports and so forth. And, and is now doing his own podcast around that. He's like, what is he probably 22 years old now? And he's making money at it, but he went after what he loved. So don't chase the money, chase your passion. At the same time, be conscious about the money because there's ways to make money doing anything, but don't uh, get caught up in the, in the money trap. Yeah, I remember you said something um, in that uh, in the Breakthrough to Success course about how uh, a lot of people would retire at 65 and then go, okay, now I'm allowed to go do what I love. And then in that process would wind up making more money or finding a lot more fulfillment. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of Gay Hendricks, who's a friend of mine who wrote a book called Conscious uh, Relationships with his wife. Yeah. And um, he worked for years and years and years, made a lot of money. Retired, decided he just wanted to hang out and do the things he loved in the process of doing that and hanging out with some musicians, he discovered these two guys that were starting Sonos, which we all have now. And uh, he invested in stock with them and made more money in the next three years. He made his whole life. Wouldn't have met him if he was still doing the books. Mm -hmm. And he started writing his own novels now. And he's had some best-selling novels that have done very well as well. So 
again, you don't want to wait till you're 65 to do what you want. <laughs> I am willing. Do we have another minute? I'll, I'll share one more story with Take you. Take your time, absolutely. So I met a guy named uh, Jake. Uh, I think it's Jake. Anyway, he lives in Texas. And he um, was uh, going to go to, he was going to school, University of Texas, let's say. And he was in a business class and is this, this, not quite a billionaire, but multi, 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 multi millionaire came to the class and spoke about what it takes to become a millionaire. And so he said, by the way, I have this porch on my house and every Wednesday I just sit on the porch. Anyone who wants to come, I just sit and talk and share my wisdom. Any of you who ever want to come out there, come out. Well, this young man was the only guy that ever did it from that class. And he went out there and the guy said, so what do you want to do with your life? He said, well, I want to go to school. I'm going to get my graduate degree in business, get an MBA. And then I'm going to start my own, I'm going to work for a couple of years for some other people. Then I'm going to start my own company. And then my goal is to be worth about $50 million. And then I'm going to sell the company. And then I'm going to do what I really want to do, which is motivate kids in high school to go for their dreams. And he said, so you're going to wait until you're like 55 years old to go for your dream. Why don't you go for your dream now? Besides, kids will trust you more at the age you are now than they'll ever trust someone who's 55. Yeah. So to make a long story short, he dropped out of school, became a motivational speaker. He was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. He now makes over a million dollars a year consulting with companies about how to motivate millennials that they hire to work in their companies. And yeah. so I'm not saying everyone should drop out of school, but I'm saying this. Don't wait till you're 55 years old to pursue your dream. That's so well said and such a great way to conclude this conversation. Um, Jack, thank you again. Guys, I'm going to be sharing in the show notes on the YouTube and the podcast how you can get to the um, upcoming speaking tour that Jack's holding as well as if you want more information at jackcanfield.com. But Jack, thank you again so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Glad we ran into each other at the Super Bowl. Yeah, same here. <laughs>